morning. It's 5 degrees in St. John's Bury at 7 p.m. on this Friday, January the 29th. I'm Bob Welch, and welcome to my world. In the headlines, some people are driving long distances to get their COVID shot. Story's the same in Maine as it is in New York, with only the place names changed. Thinking about warmer times? We thought so. The Red Sox have announced renovation plans for Fenway Park that have been years in the making. In Hinterland's Who's Who, a fisher is not a house cat. We'll tell you one man's story. Forecast tonight, the northeast of Vermont area and northern New Hampshire. You won't notice any clouds, though the forecast has them in it. You'll definitely notice the low temperature, one below zero tonight. Northwest winds 5 to 10 miles an hour. Sunshine and clouds at a high of 12 tomorrow. Northwest winds 5 to 10 miles an hour. We have tomorrow night clear, low of 9 below. And uh, my screen's jumping in front of me right now. <laughs> live, uh, we record this live, so goofs and all, they go in. Uh, sunny skies Sunday night, uh, high of 21. Oh, I forgot tomorrow night, clear, low 9 below. Uh, that's right. Sunny skies on Sunday, high 21. Sunday nights, low 4 below, up to 30 on Monday and Tuesday. It'll be sunny on Monday, flurries on Tuesday. Looking around the region, the coldest spot? is us in St. Johnsbury. We have five degrees. Warmest location is Barnstable on Cape Cod with the moderating effect of the ocean water surrounding it. Boston is checking in at 18. New York City, 21. Brewster, that is uh, not the one on the Cape. Brewster, this is the one in Putnam County, New York. They're checking in with 18 under starry skies. Same thing as Hartford, Connecticut. Montreal is 9 degrees. And Albany is 14. Now, Barnstable's got the snow, though. Nobody else does. The rest of us have starry, starry nights. I won't sing anymore. WMTW-TV in Maine reports tonight that uh, one Doug Renfrew drove more than 300 miles from his home in York, the southernmost tip of Maine. Kittery's the only community further south. To A.R. Gould Hospital. That is in Presque Isle. After his local hospital canceled clinics due to a lack of supply, other nearby spots were also booked up. Renfrew felt that driving the distance was his only choice. He tells Channel 8, I kept trying other closer options and the appointments were taken again and again and again, so I said, the heck with it. He said that after he got his first dose up in Presque Isle. Officials at Northern Light Health, which operates A.R. Gould, urge Mainers not to do what Renfrew did and instead sign up for vaccine clinics closer to their homes. Dr. James Jarvis of Northern Light Health says, Unfortunately, we don't have a supply to meet the demand. That's why we are asking people to try to stay more local and wait for an opportunity to open up closer to home. While there's nothing that prevents people from traveling long distances to get the vaccine, Jarvis said people need to remember that they need to return to the same clinic to receive their second dose. After Doug's five-hour drive from York to Presque Isle, it took 15 minutes to receive the shot. Says Renfrew, it's like the lottery, and I haven't won Powerball lately, so I took what I could get. 
He'll be back on the road in three weeks to receive his second dose. For the record, a 97-year-old got Maine's first COVID shot in Rockland in Midcoast today. We know New York State's even bigger land-wise than Maine is, though Maine has felt like the Texas of New England as I've driven your roads for many years in the Pine Tree State from end to end. Keep in mind, vacation for me was always near Eastport, if not Callis. It's a long way from Boston. But WCBS News Radio 880 in New York is reporting tonight that some seniors on Long Island essentially are doing the same thing that that man in York, Maine did, getting in the car and driving. In March, WCBS reports a woman from Melville, Long Island, will drive more than six hours to a state-run COVID-19 vaccination site at Plattsburgh's International Airport. Maine's Governor Janet Mills has announced that she will end the early closure for certain businesses that had been in effect for the past couple of months. Businesses like restaurants, bars, tasting rooms, and movie theaters have been required to close at 9 p.m. That mandate will be lifted on Monday due to a decrease in Maine's positivity rate and new COVID cases per million. Governor Janet Mills announced yesterday that she will lift the 9 p.m. curfew for a number of businesses on February 1st. Governor's announcement came as a welcome surprise to businesses as bars and restaurants say they have had significantly less revenue since the curfew went into effect on November the 20th. This is Bob's World. Merely uttering the words, Fenway Park has you thinking of summer. Hookie in this series, 5 for 18, and he takes a strike from Verlander. Streets around Fenway Park could be transformed over the next few years under development plans filed today by the owners of the Red Sox and its partners, Fenway Sports Group, the D'Angelo family, and WS Development shared their clearest vision yet to the Boston Globe of plans to redevelop eight acres around the historic ballpark. A letter to the Boston Planning and Development Agency outlines a project that calls for 2.1 million square feet of offices, housing, and retail in four buildings along Jersey and Lansdowne Streets. Jersey Street would be permanently closed to vehicular traffic and become a year-on public gathering space. Specifics such as building heights and the precise mix of uses will be fleshed out as the project moves closer to through Boston's official review process. The project, years in the making, makes the Red Sox and their neighbors, the D'Angelos, the latest uh, major Fenway landowners to join the widespread transformation of the area. Samuels and Associates has built a corridor of apartment and office buildings along Boylston Street while work is getting underway on the long-planned Fenway Center project above the Massachusetts Turnpike along Beacon Street. The scale of what Fenway Sports Group and its partners have in mind appears closer to those projects than the low-slung buildings that surround the ballpark today, though both the letter and early design renderings suggest that the historic facades of existing buildings will remain in place. The Boston Globe's Don Lyman writes today that on a summer morning, Back five years ago, he was walking in the Middlesex Fells in Stoneham, north of Boston, when he saw what looked like a large house cat with thick, dark brown fur chasing a rabbit 
along a trail about 20 feet away from him. Lyman wondered, what would a house cat be doing in the woods? Then he realized what he was looking at was no house cat. It was a fisher, a large member of the weasel family. This one looked to be about two feet long with a foot-long tail. As some of us do live in rural areas of New England and New York and the Maritimes and Quebec, we may be well aware of fishers. I hear them screeching out by the river outside my open window in St. Johnsbury in the summer. But this is within Route 128 where Lyman saw this predator. Dave Wattles is a black bear and fur bearer biologist from the Massachusetts Department of Fisheries and Wildlife, and he says fishers are indeed common across Massachusetts, but that wasn't always the case. The Mass Wildlife webpage learned about fishers section. They have a whole section devoted to them. It says they had disappeared from Massachusetts by the 1800s due to forests being cleared for agriculture. There were a few sightings of fishers reported in central Massachusetts in the 1950s and by the 70s, road kills and inadvertent captures in traps began to be reported, according to Mass Wildlife. Now, Wattles says fishers are a forest-dependent species. They were found throughout the state before European colonists came and cut down the forests. When the farms were abandoned, the forests grew back and remnant populations of fishers from northern New England spread throughout Massachusetts. Waddles goes on to say that deer hunter surveys, where hunters report wildlife species they see while hunting, show the highest sighting rates of fishers in Massachusetts are not out in the Berkshires, nor near the wooded areas near the Connecticut River in Worcester County, but in and around the Boston suburbs, the crescendo of sound from tuned tailpipes as music to the ears of some Vermonters. Heck, I've talked with some of you back when I did radio at WDEV for the better part of my adult life, mentioning stories here and there, like well, Thunder Road, the American-Canadian tour, NASCAR. <laughs> Dave Moody I consider to be a good friend of mine, and Ken Squire, a dear mentor. I appreciate what you like and why. I do. I'll be in your corner, too. That said, a number of you, particularly during these pandemic months, consider any sharp rise in muffler volume triggers an impulse to put a lid on it or a sock in it. To legally reconcile the two sonic perspectives, and there is at least one effort underway in Vermont's legislature, advocates must tackle the slippery ways of sound waves, but decibels are devilishly hard to measure outside of a laboratory, scientists say, and the Burlington Free Press reports it's nearly impossible to regulate on the road. Foolproof, affordable technology might arrive within a decade, though. A more daunting problem for residents, lawmakers, police officers, and motor hobbyists. How should a community decide how loud is too loud? That's going to be up to you. 
I haven't mentioned the talkback number in a couple of nights, but I sincerely invite you to chime in on the stories you hear on this broadcast, any of them, and to offer me your perspectives, your observations. 802-467-0212. That's 802-467-0212. And I reserve the right to put your talkback machine message on here in a future broadcast considering as we are a podcast and not live, so I can't just sort of open up the telephone lines to you. That's my closest way to replicate that. You're listening to Bob's World. The following is an opinion piece from the Globe and Mail, and it uh, argues that the real victims of the GameStop madness are the pension funds, not the hedge fund bosses. Eric Regley is the European Bureau Chief for the Toronto Globe and Mail newspaper. One of the most amusing bits of the 2008 financial crisis, he writes, was seeing the $1 billion plus that British billionaire Joe Lewis had sunk into Bear Stearns, some of it just hours before the Wall Street firm collapsed, vaporize in seconds. Rich guys who live as Tax exiles in the Bahamas generally do not garner our sympathy. I had the same reaction this week, he writes, when an army of amateur traders derided or celebrated as basement dwellers or trolls drove the shares of GameStop Corporation into the exosphere, shredding the massive short positions of the Wall Street funds that were betting the shares of the struggling U.S. video game retailer would collapse. The hedge funds exposed to GameStop lost billions, effectively triggering a massive transfer of wealth from undeserving billionaires and millionaires to taco-stuffed kids armed with the Robinhood mobile trading app and accounts on Reddit message boards. Justice, revenge, retribution, what's not to like? Here's what one Redditor said, quote, we have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to punish the sort of people who caused so much pain and stress a decade ago. Your ilk were rewarded and bailed out for a terrible and illegal financial decision that negatively changed the lives of millions. Never mind that the hedgies and their private equity fund brethren had little to do with the 2008 financial meltdown. It was a lovely narrative, but also entirely fanciful. The losers in this little romantic romp were not the Wall Street biggies. The losers were the investors, notably the pension funds that backed them. Since most of us have pensions, that would be you and me. The other losers eventually will be the Robinhood Reddit mob itself. At some point, the equity of GameStop, AMC Entertainment Holdings, Inc., Bed Bath & Beyond, Inc., and so on will go down. You'll find the rest of that opinion piece on the Globe and Mail's website. Birthdays on this 29th day of 2021 in January with 336 days left in the year include actor Tom Selleck, 76. R&B singer Betty Levette is 75. Actor Mark Singer, 73 years old. Rock musician Louis Perez of Los Lobos is 68 years old. Oprah Winfrey. 67. 
Olympic gold medal diver Greg Luganis is 61 today and former House Speaker Paul Ryan, Republican of Wisconsin, 51. On this date in 1820, King George III died at Windsor Castle, aged 81. He was succeeded by his son who became King George IV. 1845, Edgar Allan Poe's famous narrative poem, The Raven. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary, was first published in the New York Evening Mirror. 1919, ratification of the 18th Amendment to the Constitution, which launched Prohibition, was certified by Acting Secretary of State Frank L. Polk. 1936, the first inductees to baseball's Hall of Fame, including Ty Cobb and Babe Ruth, were named in Cooperstown, New York. 1963, the first charter members of the Pro Football Hall of Fame were named in Canton, Ohio. They were enshrined when the hall opened in September of that year. Poet Robert Frost died in Boston at age 88, also in 63. In 1966, the musical comedy Sweet Charity, starring Gwen Verdon, opened on Broadway. In 1975, a bomb exploded inside the U.S. State Department in Washington, causing considerable damage, but injuring no one. The radical group Weather Underground claimed responsibility. In 1975, President Jimmy Carter formally welcomed Chinese Vice Premier Deng Xiaoping to the White House following the establishment of diplomatic relations. In 1984, President Ronald Reagan announced in a nationally broadcast message that he and Vice President George H.W. Bush would seek re-election in the fall. In 1998, a bomb rocked an abortion clinic in Birmingham, Alabama, killing security guard Robert Sanderson and critically injuring nurse Emily Lyons. The bomber, Eric Rudolph, was captured in May 2003, and he is serving a life sentence. In 2002, in his first State of the Union address, President George W. Bush said terrorists were still threatening America and he warned of an axis of evil consisting of North Korea, Iran, and Iraq. And in 2006, World News Tonight co-anchor Bob Woodruff and a cameraman were seriously injured in a roadside bombing in Iraq. I mentioned co-anchor because at a point after... Peter Jennings had passed away due to lung cancer. They had paired Bob Woodruff together with Elizabeth Vargas to co-anchor World News Tonight. That ended at that moment when Bob Woodruff was injured along with that cameraman. This is Bob's World. We save the best stories for last, or at least we try to. United Press International reports an escaped wallaby was recaptured in Belgium after leading animal rescuers on a two-hour chase through the center of a city. Personnel from the Nature Help Center were dispatched this morning when a wallaby, a smaller cousin of the kangaroo, more known for being in Australia and New Zealand, was spotted hopping loose in the city of Genk, Limburg, Belgium. Nature Help Center rescuers and police chased the wallaby for about two hours before they were able to capture the marsupial. They jump like deer, best I could describe it. Now imagine for a moment the animal kingdom looking in amusement at 
a bunch of humans trying to chase a marsupial for two hours. The entire animal kingdom in the area looking at these silly humans trying to catch one of our much more athletically inclined cousins in the animal kingdom. The wallaby did have an owner and was known to Nature Help Center officials, and the animal was returned to its enclosure. Let's go to Michigan now, where animal control officers rescued a deer found with its antlers entangled in an old rope swing suspended from a tree. Berrien County Animal Control Officer Matt Kuntz says he responded to a call for assistance from the St. Joseph Police Department when the buck was found caught in a rope swing. Kuntz says in a Facebook post, Upon arrival, the buck managed to really get himself stuck. He dug himself a hole, literally and figuratively. He was really worked up and buried in deep muck. Kuntz said it took about 20 minutes for the rescuers to calm the deer enough to free him from the swing. He said the deer was released unharmed. This one comes from my friend Steve Murphy's territory. He's been the longtime anchor of the ATV Evening News now known as CTV News Maritimes at 6. This story comes out of his newsroom, in fact, in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And it takes us to a library in Sydney, Cape Breton, where a book was returned 82 years overdue after a homeowner found it stashed away in his attic. The Cape Breton Regional Library says the book, The Adventures of Dr. Doolittle by Hugh Lofting, was returned to the McConnell Sydney Library 82 years after it was checked out from the Sydney Public Library. The book was returned by Jordan Musichin, a Sydney man who found it while renovating his century-old home. He tells CTV News, quote, We were putting a fan in our bathroom, so we had to get a hole through our roof, and while we were up in the attic, we found a bunch of old books. He said the copy of Dr. Doolittle stood out because it bore markings from the Sydney Public Library and the library card from 1936, of course. 1939, make that. The story has two ironies because the week it was checked out was the same week the library had abolished their fines, conveniently enough. Here's the irony, the next irony. Library officials say the old Sydney Public Library burned down in 1959, destroying most of its books. They said the tome returned by Musichin might not have survived if it had been returned on time. Nicole McGibbon of the Cape Breton Regional Library said librarians calculated the late fee just for giggles. Assuming a late charge of 15 cents a day, she says, if we had charged a late fee, it would have amounted to about $3,000. She said library officials are now trying to get in touch with the family of the girl who checked the book out in 1939 to learn more about its journey. And it would be wonderful if that girl were still alive to tell it. That's Bob's World for Friday, January the 29th. And for this week, I'm Bob Welch. Thanks for listening.